Jessica, who's come to share with us this evening. My name is Jessica, and I'm a recovering addict. And I'm going to stand because I'm American and we're obnoxious like that. <laughs> and because I am nervous and excited, and I can't contain that sitting down at all. So standing is just a preferred state. So to address that nervousness and that excitement, you know, being asked to carry the message of Narcotics Anonymous is a tremendous privilege and a great responsibility. This is the first place that asked me to keep coming back anywhere in a long time. And to think that now I get to ask to do a meeting and for my experience, strength and hope might help somebody else get and stay clean blows my mind. So when I first got clean, my first sponsor used to tell me to write gratitude lists on a daily basis. And the simplicity of our program is what's key. And those gratitude lists that I wrote when I first got clean, when it came time for me to do the 11th step and really truly connect on a deep level with a power greater than me, it came back to the simplicity of gratitude. I found that when I wanted to pray, meditate, have that conversation with a power greater than me, it wasn't so much in me praying for other people or praying for certain things or even praying for things to be removed. It was when I was in this state of complete gratitude and just thanked the God of my understanding for another day clean that I suddenly cleared out for the first time inside that my skin finally stopped crawling off my bones using N-Clean. And I really experienced the serenity that it talks about in the meetings. Every meeting I'd ever been to, I never thought I was actually going to experience that serenity. <clears throat> Lucky for me, I'm not alone. Narcotics Anonymous is a full contact, full participation sport. <laughs> so I'm going to ask all of you to help me get to that place of serenity, and if we could all just take a few moments to ourselves in our own mind to think of a few things that we're grateful for today. I am incredibly grateful to the program of Narcotics Anonymous. It saved my life, it revolutionized my existence, and it took me on a road. It took me and changed the rotation of my life, the direction of where I was projecting to, so radically that it just, all these years later, it's more than I can comprehend. And I'm not going to talk a lot about my using, because it says at every meeting we go to, we don't care what or how much you used, or who your connections were, how much or how little you have, what you've done in the past. None of that is significant. It's actually not important. But what I want to talk about is my struggle to get clean, my struggle to stay clean, and how the program has really benefited my life. And I can't do that without telling a little bit about my story. So I got clean uh, February 24th, 1996. 
I woke up for the first time in a detox and I didn't use for that day for the first time in an incredibly long time. I checked into that detox not because I couldn't wait to get clean, that I couldn't wait to be happy, joyous, and free. <laughs> I checked into that detox and subsequently the rehab after that because I was running a scam. I was facing 10 years prison time by the time I was 19 years old. My life was not, my story is not one of a functioning addict. And I am actually incredibly grateful for that because it's what got me clean at 19. And my life was in such a nuclear wasteland that I no longer had somewhere to live. Um, I, my family had changed the locks on the doors because they lived in such fear of what financial, emotional, and physical damage I would do to them. I had no friends left. I mean, the people I was getting high with were saying, please stop coming around. We don't even care if you're holding when you come because you're just too crazy. I had racked up enough arrests that I was looking at mandatory jail time and spending the, less than, the next 10 years of my life in a um, prison for women. I hadn't been able to finish high school. I couldn't stop getting high long enough to do that, let alone stop throwing chairs across the room at teachers long enough to do that. I was unable to hold a job. I couldn't stop getting high long enough to get a job. And if by some miracle I did get a job, I couldn't stop getting high long enough to keep that job. I typically made it to the first, maybe the second paycheck, and then poof, I was gone. And I was hopeless. On such a deep level, when I came to Narcotics Anonymous, I was dragging behind me a carcass. With, with just bits of anger and fear and resentment hanging to the bones. All the light that I had in me as a child, all the dreams, all the hopes, anything that I had ever thought I loved or wanted or desired, I spent all day long just trying to get one. Real low-level, bottom-feeding kind of addict. And I was so broken. And so, I knew I was looking at this time. I knew I did not want to do this time. So that one plus one meant, okay, everybody's been talking about all these rehabs they've been wanting to send me to for years. Maybe I'll actually check into one. And I actually genuinely thought that if I went to this detox and for, I don't know, a week or two to some rehab, I'll be able to get out of doing this time. And so I went to this detox and then I went to the rehab and about two weeks into it, it suddenly really kind of clicked that you know, two or three weeks of in a program wasn't quite gonna weigh out 10 years. And I realized I was gonna have to run this game a little bit longer. And I remember the fear that welled up inside of me and what I know today was the disease of addiction racing for the fences and actually talking myself off the ledge and saying like, okay, listen, we're gonna go into this place, we're gonna do whatever they tell us to do and, and, and wait, calm, calm yourself, we're going to get high again. Don't worry. <laughs> Just stick with me for this few weeks so we don't go to prison. Can you work with me? I mean, it was really like a very sit-down, godfather type of, you know, these are the things we're going to do. And, and I was terrified. Absolutely terrified. And I remember 
about the fourth week, my family came in for that group counseling visit, which is like, and I really thought that, you know, I'd go in and they'd let me come home and, you know, I'd be able to live with them for a while. And, and they came and they told me I wasn't allowed to come home. And let me just tell you, full-on theatrics. The, you don't love me, I hate you, and, you know, the whole thing, just trying to manipulate the situation. Because they lived in the area I got high, and I needed to get back. I mean, just a kind of, a little quick using story, just to let you know how crazy. One of the times I got arrested, right, everybody turned to the car and started throwing things out the window. I don't do that. I put everything into my pants. And we get to the jail, and they don't have a female officer. So I'm like, sweet, I'm getting through. Well, then it turns out I'm going off to county. And we're in the paddy wagon, and they're taking us to, like, the mini prison, if you will. And we're in the middle of the country. I mean, I have no idea. And they had these little windows that were just open this big. And I'm locked up with a bunch of guys. I'm the only woman in this bunch of guys. I'm 18 years old, just gray, weighing about 45, 50 kilos, soaking wet. And I'm like fishing down my pants to get these drugs out, dipping them out the window. And do you want to know what I was thinking the entire time? Where are we? Because <laughs> when I get out, I need to come back here and get out. Where are we? I need to come back here to this and find this again. I wasn't worried about that I was going for my first time to the mini prison. I should have been terrified. I didn't know that I was about to get strip searched or any of that stuff. I am not, the only thing that I could think of is where are we so I can come back for these drugs. And that kind of insanity didn't stop just because I got clean. And so when I was in this rehab and, and my family said I couldn't come home and no matter what I tried to do, tears, screaming, yelling, throwing things, you know, that actually was doing anything to help the situation at all. So my roommate was talking about some halfway house she was going to. And all I could think was, there's staff there. They want to take my paycheck. You know, they tell me what to do. I'm not going there. And, and I, I wound up finding something called a recovery house, which is where eight to ten women just live together. And they have house rules, and you go to meetings. And, and I went there for the interview, and I rolled up. And these eight women interview me, and, and they're all taking bets that I'm not going to last. And guess what? I'm putting my money with theirs. Absolutely. Voted least likely to succeed. And just a little like, I'm the only person in that house that still has the same clean date. We never know which crazy ass one of us is going to get this thing. And I moved into that recovery house and I got a job, and I actually held a job, and I made meetings, and I didn't want to make meetings, and I wound up moving. I had this car when I first got, at the end of my using, and when I first got clean. Now, this car literally was held together with bungee cords. It had a big crack in the front window. It had a rejected sticker on it, but it ran. And I was the only woman in a house with a car. And so I quickly became the ride to every meeting in what felt like the tri-state area. So I wound up making 90 meetings in 90 days against my own will. And I sat in the back, and I, you know, with my hat pulled down and cut to the side because I thought I was bad. You know, like a whole thing that was going on that was crazy. And I had this little notebook that I would get filled out. 
Um, and I wasn't mandated yet, but again, I'm running a game. So I'm like, all right, cool. Did rehab check, you know, like what's the next thing? I'm going to show them that I have all these meetings and, and I'm going to, I had to go to outpatient and they said they wanted to urine test me once a month. And I said, no, 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 you're going to urine test me every week. And they're like, what? First of all, I was terrified I was going to get high. I mean, white knuckling it, I was needles, my knuckles were practically <laughs> bleeding from not trying not to use. So I thought if I had that floating around every week, that couldn't hurt. And two, it was all about when that day came and I went to court, I was gonna have all these clean urines, I was gonna have these rehab completion, all these meetings that I went to, and all this stuff, and I was just gonna blast them and, and, and wallpaper them and all this paper and try to make this all go away. And a lot of the meetings I made, I got clean in the area of New Jersey, um, in the suburbs, but the meetings that I wound up going a lot to were some really hardcore inner city meetings. And I was the only white girl in the meetings. And I would roll into these meetings, and I mean, and I'm going to tell you why I went to these meetings. It wasn't for the banging message, which actually it was. It was a fantastic message. I went there because I wanted somebody to reject me. I wanted you to tell me I was not welcome so I could leave and say, no, see, it's your fault. In my world, right, what's the easiest way to do that? Well, in America, it's called racism. So I figured if I roll up to the black meetings, and I'm the only crazy white girl, and I mean, I tried to look crazy. I walked in with size 40 pants and a big chain around my neck and, and you know, like red hair that was like, you know, and just... With it, when I tried to like, you know, I had this straw, I don't know. I had no idea. You know, I had put on so many elaborate masks, just trying to fit in, just trying to blend into the wall, just trying to be a part of, that I had no idea who I was. And every person at that meeting loved me so unconditionally. Yeah, they called me the crazy white girl with the notebook, but they loved me so unconditionally and just said, keep coming back. Keep coming back. And when they said, just for today, you don't ever have to use again, I was, mm, that's not interesting to me. I want to get high again. You know, just for today, you don't ever have to live like that again? Okay. The living part of using was actually not very fun. So that's kind of attractive. When they said you didn't have to feel that way again, just for today, you wouldn't have to feel that way again. And all I could think about was feeling my entire life like somebody took a soda pop bottle and shook it, and shook it, and shook it, and shook it, but never took the cap off. I walked around just so filled with anger and rage, and I just, my skin just blistered. I thought, I don't want to feel like that anymore. And when people in the room started to talk about the word freedom, that's really when, you know, they say hope is like a roach. It needs the smallest little crevice to work its way in. And when people said the word freedom in the rooms, I couldn't hear much of anything else because the volume in my head was so loud, but I heard that word freedom. And it just slipped right in between my rib cages. Because the reality was, is that all that time using, right, desperately, desperately seeking in the bottom of every bottle, in the corner of every bag, in the middle of every pill or wild concoction I had tried to put together, what I was seeking was freedom.
I just didn't know that freedom and escape weren't synonymous. <clears throat> and when I heard that word freedom, there was something, just enough hope that maybe, maybe this program could work for me. And it took me months of coming to meetings and sitting in the back and like just, you know, trying to do the program just the way I want to do it. I'm not going to do any of the steps that say God in it. I'm not really going to get a real sponsor. I don't know anybody telling me what to do. You know, I mean, just I'm going to get a home group, but it's, I'm not really actually going to show up to any business meetings. I just need to check these boxes. And the miracle happened in two places. One... I was in this big, huge meeting, and there was a girl celebrating one year clean. And where I got clean, when you celebrated, they had balloons, and somebody had a cake, and you were the speaker, and it was like, you know, and it was just, and this girl was up there, and, and as cliche as it sounds, she actually glowed. And there I was in the back, just kind of angry, and and I was looking, my hat pulled down as low as I could get it, and I'm looking at her, and all these people are buzzing around her like bees. And she looked loved. And I remember pulling that hat up just a little bit, just to get a better look and thinking, I want that. I want what she has so bad. That desire that it talks about in the third tradition. And a couple days, a couple weeks, a long time ago, so the timeline's a bit blurry, I found myself in the recovery house that I lived in, in my room, in the closet, in the fetal position, rocking back and forth, crying, and all I kept saying over and over is, I just want to die, I just want to die, I just want to die. And i got to tell you, nothing happened that day. I had a job for the first time in a long time, and I actually held that job. I was paying rent. My court case hadn't come to date. I still had that car. It was held together with bungee cords, but it was still running. I still had a license. I mean... I think I had at least one or two boyfriends who were buying me stuff. Life was good. <laughs> I'd been clean for like six months, a miracle for any addicts. And I really truly believed up until that moment that the problem was the drugs. That they weren't a symptom, that they were the problem. And when I was in that closet, shaking back and forth, and just everything, I just, it dawned on me finally that I'm the problem. I'm the problem. And it's going to take a lot more than some kind of scam I'm trying to run and some half-assed recovery and boxes I'm trying to check and faces and masks I'm trying to wear if I want to change that. And in that closet, I finally surrendered and truly took a first step. It isn't about the writing. The writing is wonderful. I write, 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 write. But the proof of these steps is in how we live. I didn't struggle with the honest admission about being an addict. I, I knew that when I was using. But surrendering to the program of Narcotics Anonymous, doing it the N.A. way, not my way, making the 90 meetings in 90 days, getting a real home group, getting a real sponsor that I actually picked the phone and called, going out to the diner with all the old people. Take me, old people. I'll go with you. <laughs> fellowshipping of it, not just kind of slipping in two minutes before the meeting starts and slipping out like, you know, the scatter, 
but actually hanging around is trying to build a little bit of an intimate connection. And when I finally surrendered, and for me it was kind of backwards, I kind of needed to come to believe that I was worth staying clean for before I could truly surrender. But once that surrender happened, once I finally relinquished the control, the restoration to sanity was possible. You know, and, and taking the blinders off and seeing that my way is not working. You know, and I'm going to take a wild assumption here that if you chose on this quite beautiful night, on a bank holiday weekend, to hang out in the basement of a shelter with me on a Friday night, your way wasn't working either. <laughs> and for some reason, I grappled with that for way too long, unwilling to surrender, come to believe that there might be a different way than my way, and that that different way was actually the best way for me to go. And that little motion in the third step where I turn my will and my life over to some God that I barely understand, maybe don't even like, God knows what it is, you know, just, it isn't about this, like, exalted, ah, you know, like, I now walk in the light, you know, it's not about that for me. It was, it was really this very mechanical, like, what's my will in my life? It's just my way of doing things, and I just have to have enough faith in narcotics anonymous a visible power greater than me. I mean, I saw it not only working miracles in my life, but I saw miracles around me all the time. That if this way worked for other people, then I just needed to put one foot in front of the other, have just enough faith to say, okay, I'll try a different way. You know, getting into that fourth step, because, you know, I can say I turned my will, I turned my way over doing things, but the reality is, is that I really had no idea what that really meant. And when I got into the fourth step and I began to really catalog the contradiction that was my life, and really kind of start to sort out and suss out and see these patterns and like, oh my God, again? Am I talking about this again? This happened again? It's not the same people, it's not the same place, but yet it's the same situation. And what's the common denominator? Me! There I am again. <coughs> you know, and really kind of work through. And I, I often say the most important question that I learned in the four stuff is to ask myself, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? All day, every day, to this day, what am I afraid of right now? Fifth step. I may think I know the answer to what I'm afraid of, but the evidence of my life shows me that I actually have a pretty askew perspective on myself, the world around me, my place in it, and I don't come up with very bright ideas. My best ideas led me to see Narcotics Anonymous. So I pick up the phone, I come to meetings, my sponsor, I share about it and say, this is what's going on with me, this is what I think is the core, the exact nature. And I share the exact nature. I have no time for I'm in a particular situation with a particular person and like, you know, the dancing around it because I need your help. And if I don't specifically tell you what's going on with me, how are you going to know you have the experience to offer me to get through to the other side? So I don't mince words in here about that. You know, I share exactly what's going on. Unless maybe that person's sitting in the meeting. Then maybe I don't. Because that's happened once or twice. And that's great. So, all right, I'm aware. I know. I know what I'm afraid of. You know, my sponsor, other recovery, they've all confirmed it. Okay, this is the exact nature of what's going on with me. 
Am I actually willing to do anything about it? Because that's actually really terrifying too. What, what can I do about this? I don't even know. I don't even know if there's a way out of this. And then I don't even know how to work it, function it. But I just have to be willing. And again, that willingness, third step, just be willing to turn it over. And you know, when I got to the seventh step, I tried the mix, manage, and control, which means, okay, for every time I have a defect, I'm going to act on this asset. And that's really great, and it does work for a little while. That's not what the seventh step's about. For me, it's about trusting and actually saying, take this from me. I don't have to try to, like, you will not speak up, you will not say a word, you will not say a word, because the chances are, like, me and Stephen are having a talk, and I'm like, oh, I really want to rip into him and say some terrible things, and I'm not, I'm like, oh. I'm living in my seventh step. I'm not going to say anything, right? And then, you know, I hold that in, and that, that soda bottle, that soda bottle, that soda bottle. And a week later, I went up screaming like a lunatic at Stephen on the streets of Soho, right, carrying on. And if I had just told him what a jerk he was a week before, but instead, I tried to control it, you know, and like, I'm not going to mm, you know, like. But what I didn't ask is for it to be removed. And so it gets back to that fear for me. And so when I got to the seventh step, my, my, my sponsor, myself, the women I sponsor, we have a little seven-step prayer that you customize, you make up for yourself. And my sponsor's is, is she wakes up in the morning and she does her seven-step prayer and she asks the God of her understanding to give her um, <coughs> appropriate perspective. So she believes that she starts each day, her perspective is upside down. She doesn't know where she is, where the universe is, where her place is. And if she can get that right from the start of the day, then the fight is half won. Mine goes back to that fear, the ultimate mothership defect that everything ties back to all the different ways I act out. I'm afraid you're not going to love me. I'm afraid you're not going to like me. I'm afraid I'm not enough. I'm afraid if I'm honest with you and I let you know who I really am, you're not going to like me. I'm afraid to be vulnerable. I'm afraid, you know, fear, fear. And so what I say is, you know, please, please, God, take this fear from me. Just take it. And have, I have enough faith that all the emptiness that leaves, there's enough beauty in me, enough assets in me to fill the voids. And I... I have this little mantra, and it's a lyric from a song of one of my favorite artists, but she always, there's a song, and she says, I'm a fountain of love in the shape of a girl. And that's my seven-step mantra. I just want to be a fountain of love in the shape of a girl. You know, I want to be able to split open my ribcage bone by bone, reach in there, grab my heart, and offer it to you unafraid. My love, I want to receive it back. That's all I want. So I say this, and i got to tell you, I mean, I've said this little prayer from everything from a job interview to a blind date, an internet dating, online dating. Oh, God, have I said that. <laughs> you know, just take this fear from me. Allow me to be beautiful. I am beautiful. Just let that come through. And then sometimes it was followed by, oh, God, please get me out of this date. <laughs> or interview. Or whatever other situation. You know, be careful what you pray for. <laughs> And then, you know, this leaves me with, okay, great. So now it's like I have some tools. I actually have some skills to deal with the way that I harm myself and harm others. But now it's time to deal with the way I've harmed 
other people. Because I can't, amends isn't saying I'm sorry. Amends is changing the behavior and not repeating it. And without a six and seven, I can say I'm sorry all I want. I'm going to keep doing it because that's what I do. That's my will. That's my way. So until I learn a different way, I can't truly really make amends. Maybe some financial amends. If I can also try not to rack up some more financial amends I'm going to need to make. And so I get to this place and I take this list of these people, places, and things that I harmed. And I begin the amend process. I become willing, no matter who it is on the list, willing to make amends to everyone. And it doesn't happen in a day. I had an amends. It took six, seven years to bump into this guy to make the amends. To pay him back the money that he had lent me all those times ago to get me out of some crazy situation where I was running for my life. The money that this man wired to me. Dragged that with me through years and years of recovery until I finally got the opportunity to make that amends. And when I had that opportunity to make amends, I was so financially solvent that it wasn't a thing. So the opportunity presented itself when I could actually do it. And it's a lifelong thing. You know, my amends, I sat down at a nice dinner table, white dinner table cloth with my mother, and made very formal amends. We were on vacation together, and it was very formal. And that was great. But the reality was is that I was staying clean. I was showing up. I was on vacation with her. We hadn't killed each other yet. I was willing to go. I actually paid my own way. <laughs> Those amends. Becoming the daughter she always wished she had. And I remember that point where, and it's inevitable when you make amends to most parental figures, I won't classify all, but you said, and they, oh, if I'd only done things differently, if I sent you here, if I'd done this or I'd done that, and it was like, stop. Because I finally got it. When people said, I'm a grateful recovering addict when I first got clean, I was like, why would you be grateful to be a recovering addict? Like, oh, who would want this? Affliction. <laughs> let alone the maintenance program that goes with it. You know, it's like when I first got, it was anger. And I was like, Mom, I'm really grateful. I'm happy I took the path that I took because it led me to Narcotics Anonymous. I never had these coping skills. I didn't know how to deal with life on life's terms when I was growing up. I didn't know how to deal with my feelings. I knew nothing about this spiritual course at all. And if I hadn't done all of the things, the using, the lying, the stealing, all of that, I wouldn't have wound up in Narcotics Anonymous. I wouldn't have gotten this chance to be the daughter I am today. Period. And to say that and mean it, and finally, with all that sludge, cleaned out of the way, like all this past, being able to finally live in today. Step 10. When I came out of the fifth step, I was literally like, there's no way I'm ever going to be able to truly live just for today. Not worry about the past and project about the future and, you know, think and fantasize about all the things that I should have said, could have said, or just fantasy in general. That's never going to happen. And there I was in step 10, able to look and live in the day, focus in the day. What a gift. What a gift. And with that open-heartedness that comes after ripping open the ribs cage and letting all this out, there was so much room to have a spiritual awakening. That's the result of these steps, to have that spiritual awakening. And 
it's not about long periods of meditation for me. It's still not. I'm just not that girl. It's about like being on a surfboard in the middle of the West Coast of Canada and looking at a sunset and, and being there, tasting it, feeling it, not wanting to be anywhere else with anybody else. There. My skin fits like a cord, you know, glove. It's no longer crawls. I also lost the ability to be tragically hip and fatally cool. <laughs> right? No longer drinking the haterade, as I like to say. The 11th step gave me the freedom to say, I'm going to have fun. Every moment of every second I possibly can, I'm going to have fun. I don't care how corny it is. I don't care what's going on. I don't care if you've got the wrong <clears throat> shoes on. I don't care if I have the wrong shoes on. What my hair looks like. Oh, I do kind of care what my hair looks like, but <laughs> I'm going to have fun. You know, because there were times in my life where it was like I had these opportunities for really beautiful, intimate moments and stupid stuff like laying in the grass with a lover, but I don't want to get my dress dirty. You know, just like robbing myself of beautiful moments because I just couldn't be there and just be free and just be like, okay. And, um, you know, the 12th step is multifaceted in the way that it's not just about carrying the message. It's not just about doing service, although that is a huge part of it. And I've got to tell you, with 18 years clean, I have a home group. I'm the greeter at my home group. I have a commitment H&I. Um, I sponsor women. And I don't say this to impress you. I say this because if you want what I have, that's specifically what I do, and I suggest you do what I do. And so I don't dance around the service. And the women I sponsor do service. It's a very subtle command that I use. <laughs> Honey, the women I sponsor do service. <laughs> Fill in the blanks of what happens when you don't. <laughs> you know, um, I'm hardcore like that. I'm not quite as militant as I have kind of mellowed with age, believe it or not. I don't quite carry my N.A. badge, you know, and my basic text, I make sound wine, the holster's like gone, pew, 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 pew. But I love this program. I really love this program, and I've committed to this program fully and wholeheartedly. You know, Narcotics Anonymous is just the bee's knees, and it's my responsibility, and it is the greatest act of gratitude I can express, because gratitude, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's not a feeling, it's an action. It's a verb, it's something I do. And by showing up to meetings, and you know, this isn't a one-way thing. I just moved here from New York City seven or eight months ago. I moved to a brand new city where I barely knew anybody. You know, I had some friends in recovery that hooked me up on Facebook with some other friends in recovery, friends of friends of friends of friends, which was great and wonderful. I had to rebuild a whole network. I had some great girls in New York City. Like, we rolled deep. <laughs> and I had to rebuild that. I have a couple really amazing brothers in this process that I've known since I first got clean. You know, and like, we laughed till the tears come down. And it was terrifying to think about, and I've done it before. I've moved to New York City, fallen a dream, da-da-da-da, set up shop, uh-uh. It's really easy because the program's simple, right? Make 1990, <coughs> still applies. Get a home group and a commitment, still applies. So I'm doing all these things, but it's still not easy. 
I remember going to meetings. I'm just, you know, every meeting I was going to, I'm not, and I would share it every meeting, let everybody know I was new and ask for help. I'm doing it and doing it and I'm getting some numbers. And then it's like, I'm just lonely. But guess what? I didn't call any of those numbers. It's the same thing when I first got clean. Oh, I don't know what to say. It's too late. It's too early. It's too this. It's too that. You know, like all that same silliness playing out in my head. I'm mean, like, okay, now I'm going to start calling these numbers, you know, and like really just making a connection. In a big town like this, it's easy to fade to black. It's easy to just kind of hang out on the edges and just fall right off. And I got to tell you, there was a part of me, and I shared this with my sponsor before I moved, and I said to her, there's this one voice. You know the voice. I don't mean to sound crazy. I try not to personify the disease because I think it makes us sound a little nuts. But I can't lie. It's actually like a little voice in my head. It speaks to me in my own voice. And it says things like, you're moving to London. This is a really prime op. You got clean 18 years? Fade. And I shared that with my sponsor. I was like, I'm just telling you, these are some of the thoughts going through my head. I still know what I need to do. And I'm still going to go there and do it. But there's that voice. Even after all this time, you know what the first step confirmed to me? I'm an addict. Through and through, and when I use my life goes in one direction, that's down, and for me, it's with a quickness. Like, bam, right to the prison. Bam, right to the unemployability. I do not fade in that way at all. And I have some beautiful things that recovery has given me. Family, friend, I have a husband. That's a whole nother share. But the hopelessness, the hopelessness I had in the area of relationships for years, and now I have this partner in my life who loves me unconditionally that I can be totally myself around, is imperfect. But it's mine, and it's the best partner for me. I don't want to do that to him. He met me when I had 13 years clean. That poor sucker wouldn't even know what hit him. <laughs> I'd have so much money out of the bank and he wouldn't even have his key in the front door yet. And so it's like I continue to do the work. My sponsor's response when I called her and I said that to her, and we met, we talked, she said, you never have to go back to the basics if you never leave them. And so that's how this program still works for me today. Very simple, I make meetings regularly. And for me, regular attendance of meeting these days is three. Actually, my meeting attendance has gone up quite. I usually make about five meetings a week now. I sponsor people. I pick up the phone whenever I can when people call. I have a home group. I show up at that home group every week unless, you know, something comes up, which life does. And when that happens, guess what I do, people? I get somebody to cover my commitment because I'm the one that took the commitment. And that's what commitment means. Just in case anybody wasn't sure, you can't show up, call somebody. And I have all the phone numbers of most of the members of my home group because we're family. This is my home. I go to each night, even on the months when I don't want to. You know, I have to do these things. That's my first step. And if I can get these things spinning here, and my life now is like, you know, and I'll share this and I'll shut up. It, so I get to move here, right? And I get to make friends. And we moved here, we got here uh, September 1st, and by November 28th, we had about 12, 15 Brits in our house having Thanksgiving. All of which were people that I knew. And then, you know, New Year's Eve and 
you know, hanging out and all this stuff and everybody here tonight and going out and doing this stuff. And like my husband, lovely man, not in the program, God bless him, he hasn't made a single friend. Do you know how beautiful this fellowship is? Anywhere I go in the world, I can walk into a room and get a hug and be embraced like this long-lost survivor from a shipwreck. <laughs> you know, like, and I can choose to have a really intimate conversation and really, like, do you know people with, like, how many loud pub conversations they must have to go through till they finally meet somebody long enough to have one real conversation? I don't have to live that way. That's how amazing this program is, how amazing this fellowship is. You know, who do you think showed me where to buy my kettle? You. I didn't, how would I know Curry's sold electronics, people? <laughs> that doesn't go together. <laughs> so if there's anybody new, please keep coming back. You know, just a disclaimer, um, I'm not the president of Narcotics Anonymous. I'm not HRHNA. You know, I'm just an addict. And, and I understand that seeing me up here and listening to me, and it might seem like the distance between where you sit and where I stand is a million, a billion miles. And I've got to tell you, it's not even measured in the years that I've been clean. It's 12 steps. That's how far you are from where you sit to where I stand. 12 really simple steps. So give yourself a break and keep coming back. Thanks for letting me share.